0: This is not your average school psychologist podcast. We are your hosts, Rachel Eisenberg, Laura Rutherford, Jana Sanders, and Lisa Thomas.
1: But so today we talk with Brittany Zakeski about Tier 2 interventions for students with social, emotional, and behavioral wellness needs. She shared so many stories about the background of the
0: public health model, the distinction of internalizing and externalizing behaviors, and so much more. I really, really enjoyed learning some of that history that I just hadn't known before.
1: Yeah, and I think she really spoke a lot about that kind of overwhelming need for mental health supports in schools that we kind of know about, but when you put numbers on it, it really brings us to the forefront. And then thinking about what's the availability of these interventions for students who kind of have needs related to symptoms of anxiety and depression. And then even more specifically, like how do we make these interventions more accessible to schools uh, and more feasible for them? And with a better contextual fit as well, as well as just the idea of like, wow, we should really be looking at some of our state or district use survey data and to hear examples or see examples just generally of how we can understand our students' needs a little bit better, um, specific to where we are.
0: Yeah, it should- She brought data in as as informing everything that we do from different perspectives right so identifying uh, looking at data to identify the students who have needs, but also looking at data to progress monitor students as they progress through a tier two intervention and she shared some options for tier two progress monitoring tools.
1: Yeah, I think she shared a lot of really great information with us on about tier two um, and interventions. And she also, you know, talked a little bit about watermelon jolly ranchers, which is an interesting thing. So please listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully something relatable for everybody. Absolutely. (laughs) Welcome to Not Your Average School Psychologist podcast. I'm Laura Rutherford and with me is Rachel Eisenberg. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to have a very special uh, guest. Dr. Brittany Zakeski is an assistant professor in the School of Education at the University of Delaware. Brittany directs Project GROW, which stands for Growing Resilience, Opportunity, and Wellness in Delaware Schools, which is a statewide partnership to advance training and practice in evidence-based equity-centered school mental health service delivery and coordination within a multi-tiered systems of support or MTSS framework. As a licensed psychologist, certified school psychologist, and board-certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level, she teaches courses in behavioral and systems consultation, advises graduate students, and partners with schools to promote policy and practice related to school mental health and MTSS. Her scholarship focuses on systemic approaches to promoting students and school personnel's well-being and particularly ensuring equitable educational and health outcomes. Presently, Brittany is engaged in research, examining profiles and predictors of student and personnel well-being, connecting universal screening results to systemic and targeted interventions, efficient interventions for students at risk of developing emotional disorders, and Effects of School Staffing Shortages and State-Level Educational Policies on Organizational and Individual Outcomes. Welcome to the podcast, Brittany.
2: Thank you so much. Hi, everyone.
1: so great to have you here today. Um, So we're going to be focusing today on talking about kind of Tier 2 in a school systems of support model. And so before we start that discussion, we thought it might be helpful to all get on the same page and talk about the framework for how we kind of structure uh, universal supports.
2: Absolutely. So I'll use that term multi-tiered systems of support or MTSS probably like a thousand more times today. So MTSS (laughs) is multi-tiered systems of support, and this is a service delivery framework that has its roots in the public health model of prevention. So going back in time just a little bit, if you'll join me on this journey, um, the field of public health emerged a little bit after the World Wars of the 20th century. So there was a lot of interest in how we can promote the physical and mental well-being of everyone, especially given the widespread tragedies that affected so many of the world's population during World War II. So especially in like the late 60s and early 70s, the field of public health emerged and they were really trying to answer the questions of who gets sick and who doesn't get sick? Why? Or why do some people get sick and others not get sick? And then what can we do to make sickness less common and to promote wellness for more people? So as public health researchers were doing their work, they developed this model that we now call the Public Health Model of Prevention. So generally in this public health model of prevention, we have one tier or category that is called universal prevention, we'll call that tier one today, tier one services are provided to all individuals to promote their wellness and to prevent adverse outcomes. That second tier of service delivery is secondary prevention that's tier two and that's what we're focusing on today. But secondary prevention practices are provided to individuals at increased risk for adverse outcomes who have risk factors that might predispose them to developing a health or well-being condition. And then that final tier of service delivery is tier three, and that's tertiary prevention. Tertiary prevention services are provided to those individuals who are already experiencing or recovering from that adverse health condition. We can think about this model in terms of COVID-19 for example. So at tier one, after schools and businesses opened up during the pandemic, we saw everyone engaging in hand washing and mask wearing, right? That was for everyone. That's an example of universal prevention. Now, those folks who are at increased risk of contracting and having serious health implications related to COVID-19, such as folks with respiratory conditions or immunocompromised systems, they might have also engaged in secondary prevention. They might have continued to social distance in addition to hand washing and mask wearing. But those who contracted COVID would do all of those things and rest increase their consumption of liquids, et cetera, to support their recovery from the disease. So as you can see here, these tiers of prevention really build on top of each other, and they do not substitute for one another. So this is the same when we apply this public health model of prevention in schools. So this fairly simple schema of having three tiers of service delivery somewhat quietly changed how a lot of things are done both in medical settings and communities, but eventually also trickled into the school settings. So as early as, depending on who you ask, typically the 1980s, scholars in education began developing models of tiered prevention in schools. So a lot of these early discussions were around the prevention of antisocial behavior and the prevention of reading disabilities. Later on in like the 1990s, the world of special education and applied behavior analysis merged to introduce what was originally called school wide positive behavior support, which would later be rebranded as PBIS or positive behavioral interventions and supports. And around this same time, and as also recognized in the reauthorization of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or IDEA, scholars introduced response to intervention or RTI as a framework for tiering academic intervention services based on learners' needs. So both PBIS and RTI were grounded in this public health model of prevention, and both PBIS and RTI would later fall under the umbrella of a new, more comprehensive term to describe generally this application of public health model of prevention in schools, and that's MTSS. So MTSS is again, the service delivery framework. It's not a prevention, intervention, or practice. It's a way for schools to operate more efficiently and effectively in addressing learners' needs based on identifying what students need and providing them the supports that are aligned with those needs. So MTSS is based around this logic of tiered prevention. And within this logic, we can uh, assume that in any educational context, Tier one services should be designed and delivered to allow at least 80% of all students to be successful in a given domain, such as reading, math, social skills, or coping skills, with only receiving those tier one supports. That tier two services should be designed and delivered to allow at least 15% of all students to be successful with that combination of tier one and tier two supports, and that Tier 3 services should be designed and delivered to enable those remaining 5% of students, roughly, to be successful with a combination of Tier 1, 2, and 3 supports. Now, this really means that schools need to be carefully assessing their base rates and the types of need that students are presenting with in order to really effectively design support systems. It doesn't mean that there are across all settings, all types of schools and all and all individual contexts that tier two interventions always look like this or tier one supports always look like this. But within PBIS and within a lot of applications of MTSS for behavior and social emotional behavioral wellness, we see that universal prevention practices include things like defining school-wide expectations, Including expectations for behavior, but also recognizing social emotional learning competencies that should be addressed and enforced by all personnel in the settings. It also includes explicitly teaching those behavioral, social, and emotional expectations, acknowledging students for meeting those expectations, providing supportive, instructional, and restorative corrective consequences for students who are not meeting those expectations and then using data in a really intentional manner to make decisions about service delivery in schools. But I think today we're talking about tier two. So just to focus in a little bit more on tier two, um, tier two represents services for some students in the school, not all of the students, but again, roughly that uh, 15% who are only receiving tier one and tier two and additional 5% who are receiving tiers one, two, and three. Now these students are identified as at risk for negative outcomes in a certain domain, whether that domain be in the academic world, reading, math, written expression, or in more of the social emotional behavioral world, things like social skills, coping skills, those types of things. Um, One pet peeve I have is when folks define tier two as small group intervention, because it can be small group intervention, but it's not always small group intervention. And it can be problematic to define a tier of service delivery based on its implementation format. So even though it's commonly delivered in that way, we don't want to define it only in that way. So not all small group interventions are tier two, and it's not true that any non-small group intervention is not tier two, to say that in a somewhat more confusing way. (laughs) But when it it comes to classifying interventions, we need to consider a few different dimensions to, to see whether they make sense and are appropriate for a tier two. One is for whom the intervention is designed and found to be effective. So for example, is the intervention intended for students in the general population, which would be more of like a tier one in general schools for students at risk for negative outcomes, which would be more like tier two in general schools or for students presenting and experiencing more extreme difficulties, which would be more like a tier three in general schools. Basically, is this intervention designed for students needing support at this tier is one primary consideration. But another one that's equally as important, I would say, is the intervention's contextual fit and usability or feasibility in the setting. Mm -hmm. So it's important to keep in mind that any program or practice is only as effective as its implementation. So non-evidence-based implementation of evidence-based programs is not likely to lead to positive outcomes. So if the program or practice cannot be feasibly implemented across time in a setting, it's not a good fit for adoption at tier two. So we think about for whom the intervention is designed and whether the intervention can be feasibly adopted and implemented with fidelity across time. And my body of research really looks at this generally how can we promote outcomes for youth at risk for mental health concerns through tier two interventions, and how can we improve the systems and structures in schools to better support those initiatives.
0: What a comprehensive picture of how we came to this framework of MTSS, and I'm not sure everybody has that background and understanding kind of where this came from out of a public health model, and so I I loved listening to that whole story. You, you told it so beautifully, <laughs> how we came here and, and how you ended up with focusing on Tier 2 and working on promoting students' mental health and behavioral wellness and preventing further problems for students who are showing some risk. So you you may have addressed this, but I, I'm curious, I see you breaking beyond barriers all over, but I'm curious, how would you define what your work, how your work breaks beyond the barriers of what's traditionally occurring within the field of school psychology?
2: Well, thank you, Rachel. I never really <laughs> identified myself as much of a barrier breaker. Um, <laughs> My husband says I'm very uh, rule conforming and just a little rigid in this area, but I like this new (laughs) this new me. So I'll say there are two primary ways in which I'm being at least conventional for one. And maybe this is more conventional than I think, but I'm conducting research on educational policy which is not super common among school psychologists. In my school of education, there are folks who study educational policy specifically, but this isn't a huge focus on or in the field of school psychology. And it's interesting because school psychs have unique training in educational systems and school mental health, but we don't see folks researching these macro systemic factors in the realm of legislation all that much. And here I'm talking about more state-level education policies, as well as district-level educational policies. So my colleagues and I are looking at the connections between those state and district-level policies and really the capacities and effectiveness of schools in serving students who are at risk for mental health concerns, but also specifically students who are at increased risk for mental health concerns based on their societal and social identities, so looking at students who are students of color, looking at students with minoritized gender and sexual identities who are directly targeted right now um, by a lot of policies that are being passed in in states in the United States. But specifically, we've been looking at um, outcomes for these youth. We've been looking also at schools' infrastructure to implement MTSS and provide these types of services as well as protections for or unfortunately oppression of minoritized students, those students of color who identify as female or who identify as LGBT. So we're in the process of conducting a series of Comparative Interrupted Time Series Design Studies, which is a fancy way of saying we're taking data on schools, students, and school personnel that have been collected on fairly regular intervals across time, like every year or every other year for pretty long periods, and examining whether there are changes in those data following the enactment of new education policies. And this process allows us to infer with some limitations about the the causal influences of these educational policies in these settings so that's one way the educational policy i would say a second way that i'm focusing on that i would love for others to also focus on is not on owning mental health as school psychologists but rather as working as change agents in schools to empower all personnel in schools to be mental health change agents so sharing the love of mental health promotion with other people in the school and making sure that we are not the gatekeepers of the services for mental health promotion so i'm not talking about training teachers to be therapists i'm talking about evolving school cultures to be ones in which the credentialed school mental health professionals so the school psychologists the counselors the social workers are viewed as leaders, facilitators, and consultants in school mental health systems, in systems that do not rest on their shoulders. And now this isn't a revolutionary idea, right? So um, 60 years ago, Gerald Kaplan wrote about this idea. He developed a model of mental health consultation in which mental health professionals weren't the only ones who were providing services. But this is an idea that I think has gotten more attention in recent years due to, two compounding crises. One is the national crisis of youth mental health, which was declared in 2021 by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association. Um, But the second crisis being the school staffing shortage. So shortages exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, and especially shortages among school mental health professionals, and for that matter, community and clinical mental health professionals too. And so the logic here in this idea is fairly simple. There are lots of students with unaddressed mental health needs and risk and current structures and systems for supporting mental health are clearly insufficient. For example, if you think back to that tiered prevention logic I spoke of, our tier one and tier two supports in schools are likely insufficient in reaching those 80-15 targets in most of the settings currently. But we also don't have the mental health professionals available to deploy or even to hire to provide these highly specialized services. Even if we were not intervening within an MTSS framework, we just don't have the people with the expertise to do this work. So for these reasons, it's pretty clear that we need to identify lower tier. So tier one and tier two, universal and secondary prevention services and that we need to train, prepare, and support more staff in schools to implement these services. These might look, for example, like supports for a classroom teacher to provide intensified social-emotional learning lessons, or it could look like implementing a small group-based intervention protocol class-wide because more students in the classroom need it than just a few students. When it comes to tier two specifically, I'm looking to build more intervention options and adaptation strategies to overcome the barriers that we see with mental health service delivery in schools, to overcome barriers of implementer preparation, taking a lot of time, to overcome the barrier of training not being available for many folks in this area. If we can make more tier two options that are feasible and usable available, ones that can be used by a classroom teacher, a reading specialist, the health teacher, then we'll probably see a notable uptick in tier two implementation, and hopefully then by extension improved outcomes for students with mental health risk.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really, even though you've you mentioned this is not a revolutionary idea, I think it kind of, for a lot of school psychologists, is sort of a revolutionary idea that we can't do it all. We can't provide the services to the number of students who need them. Um, And there's the ratios just don't support that with our mental health professionals. So how can we use interventions or other things, um, uh, kind of proactive things that that we don't require um, mental health personnel to implement? Um, And so I I think that's really great and really important, especially given the barriers to, that you've mentioned. um, We just can't meet the needs of all the students. And so I think what ends up happening is tier two gets ignored a little bit, right? Because we focus on tier one, which is great. And we focus on the kids who have very intensive needs. And then all the kids in the middle, they kind of get lost a little bit.
2: Exactly. They're like the middle child in a family, right? (laughs) I'm I'm the oldest child, so I yeah.
1: I, I don't yeah. Except so. in my family, but yes, <laughs> oh, this is true. This yeah. is true. My for people who don't know my family, my daughter gets plenty of not. She's not forgotten. She makes sure of that. But many middle children. <laughs> I think you're right. The poor middle children. Fifteen percent of your school, which is a lot. A lot of middle children <laughs> forget them. Um. So people may not be as familiar with your work. Um. So let's think back to how back in time. How did you get into this field?
2: Yes. So, um, like probably 60 to 80% of all school psychologists, I started out wanting to be a clinical psychologist. I loved working with kids. I loved working with children and adolescents. And I thought that mental health services would be a very meaningful line of work for me. I completed my undergrad in Baltimore and throughout my years of undergrad, I worked at a university multidisciplinary clinic that provided Psychological, speech language, and audiological services. I completed a lot of office and clerical work, supported groups, supported clinical research. Um, And one thing that drew me to apply for this clinical assistant position, other than the obvious expenses of being a college student, was the opportunity to work within a sliding scale payment clinic in an underserved and under-resourced community. And now one thing that struck me throughout my experiences though was the challenges families reported and generally evidenced in both seeking treatment, but also continuing community-based services to the point of true termination and positive outcomes. And this led me to consider the value of providing services within other existing structures and specifically schools. So all students need to attend schooling, in one shape or another. I thought if we could provide more services in schools, there could be fewer issues with treatment access and continuation. I thought if we could provide more services in schools, there would be smaller disparities in health and education-related outcomes related to race, income, all of these areas. And of course, I still had much to learn about inequities present within the education system, which would eventually provide me a little bit of disillusionment and disenchantment, but that's a different story. So ultimately, I committed myself to being a clinical psychologist who worked in schools. And then my undergrad mentor informed me of this career called school psychology. So I had very faint memories of a school psychologist in my own district growing up was the lady who asked me weird questions about blocks, who told me to memorize strings and numbers <laughs> and who gave yes. me a watermelon Jolly Rancher at the end of our testing sessions. And I vividly remember that because um, watermelon is the best flavor of Jolly Rancher.
1: So for all <laughs> psychologists who might be listening, this is an important note, right? So Jolly who about the blocks? It's about the watermelon Jolly Rancher, <laughs> the Jolly Rancher at the end.
0: <laughs>
2: but it was, this was a woman who, played weird games with students in the school counselor's office, and I couldn't imagine this person doing anything remotely close to what I wanted to do. But I said, okay, I'll give school psychology a shot. I um, shadowed a school psychologist in the special education school in Baltimore. I decided that, yeah, do this. This this might be the, the way that I have the impact that I want to have. And um, I pursued grad school from there. So early along in grad school, though, I learned that I didn't want to be that person providing Jolly Ranchers and school counselors offices, that I wanted to be the type of school psychologist who changed change schools more from the top down, not student by student, but more system by system. I learned I wanted to do organizational work to help schools work smarter, not harder, to make the process of supporting students in the way they need and want to be supported as simple and straightforward as possible. and um, yeah, I pursued grad school from there.
0: So tell us, what are you most passionate about?
2: Mm. Yeah, I think building off my last point, I'm very passionate about many things. So I'm choosing <laughs> what which, which is my passion of focus that I, I feel comfortable sharing in this format. I think building off my last point, I want folks to know that my commitment is making school personnel's jobs easier, not more challenging. I do tier two. and. I do intervention research, and a lot of times people might think that the goal is to have schools adopt a thousand different tier two interventions and have these really intensive services provided in schools. And I don't think that's the solution. I don't think that's a feasible option where we are right now. I don't develop and research tier two interventions because I want schools to adopt a dozen tier two interventions. I don't want schools to bend and stretch their systems to implement interventions that aren't well suited for them and feasible for them. I want schools to have the structures and systems and tools to build the type of tier two system that works for them, that addresses their students' needs and that can be sustained across time in their setting. And part of my commitment in this area looks like adapting and evaluating interventions with different implementation requirements. So comparing, for example, interventions designed for implementation across a really short timeline as opposed to a longer timeline by any school personnel with basic group instruction training versus credentialed school mental health professionals. Another part of this commitment for me looks like isolating treatment components or identifying what specifically makes an intervention work. We have a lot of multi-component programs out there, but we haven't always examined what of each com- what components of each program are having the effects on student outcomes. So if we can identify and really prioritize those active ingredients that best explain student's improvement, we may be able to pare down interventions or at least implementation requirements to only include those that are truly necessary for change in student outcomes. Mm -hmm. So overall, I know that the demands of schools and school personnel make the adoption, implementation and even the de-implementation of school mental health initiatives exhausting, if not unfeasible in many years. So my work is really focused on practical applications to simplify and streamline this work.
1: Yeah, that's great. So you alluded to this a little earlier when we talked about the mental health crisis um, that was declared, and I think in many ways that mental health crisis surrounds like internalizing kind of Mm -hmm. needs. Can you talk a little bit about the need for students internalizing supports in schools?
2: Absolutely. And so I can even back up a bit and explain the internalizing, externalizing categorization, if that would be helpful.
1: That'd be really helpful. Yes.
2: Okay. So the term internalizing is used to refer to behaviors that are focused on, or even considered within air quotes friends within an individual. (laughs) So internalizing behaviors are not always observable or as observable and attention grabbing as externalizing behaviors and common examples for internalizing include withdrawal, somatization, and other symptoms commonly associated with anxiety and depression. Now the term externalizing, air quotes, is used to refer to behaviors that are more outward facing that might occur within interactions or otherwise are happening in a social environment. So these are much more easily observed than internalizing behaviors, and even be more annoying, upsetting, or disruptive. So externalizing behaviors commonly include hyperactivity and aggression, as some examples. All of these can be considered a a part of mental health, but when we use the term mental health, we're typically talking more about like anxiety and depression. We're talking more about emotion-related symptoms and not about those more conduct-related observable instances that we're seeing in the classroom. It's important to keep in mind that this distinction between internalizing and externalizing it's actually first made in the 1960s in a factor analytic study by Thomas Achenbach of the the SEBA uh, system. And um, he was looking to, he was, he was trying to identify different factors associated with um, children's psychopathological or mental health symptoms. And when he found that we could distinguish them into internalizing and externalizing it, like revolutionized the field of clinical psychology. And this categorization has been used now in probably thousands, if not tens of thousands, of peer-reviewed papers published each year across the past 60 or so years. And so although this categorization is pretty widely used, is conceptually clear, and even empirically supported, there are some limitations, uh, especially when it comes to intervention planning, when we consider externalizing versus internalizing. First, uh, this distinction is based on symptoms etiology or how they came to be and it's based on their topography or what the symptoms look like, but it's not focused on their function or the purpose that symptoms are serving for an individual or why they're occurring. Um, And this point suggests that taking a more functional approach to intervention planning or thinking about why these behaviors are occurring can also be helpful. It's also important to consider that research is suggesting there are really high rates of comorbidity among internalizing and externalizing symptoms or that these behaviors and symptom patterns often co-occur. Now, this suggests that taking a more transdiagnostic approach or an approach to intervention planning that considers the full profile of student needs can be really helpful in identifying common elements of needs, but also common strategies that could support both internalizing and externalizing needs. Now, all that being said, National studies have been suggesting that rates of internalizing symptoms specifically, think anxiety and depressive symptoms, are increasing. They've been increasing among children and adolescents for some time, and that this was, of course, certainly true during the 2020 to 2021 era of the pandemic, in which a lot of data are now coming forth. Preliminary studies in that 2022 to 2023 period are suggesting that kids are doing better than they did during the pandemic or that prevalence rates have somewhat plateaued, but we're not seeing significant improvements compared, for example, to the 2010-2020 decade. but I can give you some specific numbers. I have my my stats document listed up here. Always I'm num- to talk about I'm numbers. a numbers person. <laughs> yeah, I like I like data. So here's some data to give you an idea of the need here. I work with a lot of data collected by, say Delaware. And one example is the Delaware Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which some of you might have heard before, the YRBS is administered in national samples as well as state level samples. In Delaware, we had administrations to both middle and high school students biennially, every other year across the past decade or so. And this included the spring of 2021. And one question on that survey asked our students During the past 12 months, did you ever feel so sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more in a row that you stopped doing some usual activities? So it's not just asking about ever experiencing sadness or hopelessness. It's asking specifically about functional impairment for at least a two-week period related to sadness and hopelessness symptoms. In 2021, 33% of all Delaware middle school students responded yes. And that was 46% of all students identifying as female and 21% of all students identifying as male. Hmm. But even more alarmingly, 37% of Delaware high school students responded yes. And that was half of all students identifying as female and 23% of students identifying as male. Hmm. Another question asked, one more question for you. When you feel sad, empty, hopeless, angry, or anxious, How often do you get the kind of help you need? In 2021, 57% of our middle school respondents and 71% of those endorsing ever experiencing those symptoms reported that they never, rarely, or only sometimes got the kind of help they needed. And this was true for 61% of high school respondents including 80% of students who endorsed ever experiencing those symptoms. Wow. So what this tells me is that at least during the 2020 to 2021 school year, which I recognize was a different context for many schools, but at least during this year, rates of internalizing symptoms were highly prevalent among Delaware adolescents and access to, quote, the kind of help students need, unquote, was very limited as well. This probably isn't surprising to those of us who have worked in or with schools across the past few years, Um, especially if you've learned like me that students with externalizing behaviors are more likely to get identified for support and to receive support and benefit from support than students with internalizing behaviors. Right. You may also be familiar with the issue of intervention offerings. So um, there are far more efficient school-based interventions designed to address externalizing behaviors that have been adopted in school settings than there are those that have been designed to address internalizing concerns. So one well-known example is check-in, check-out, which is probably the best-known Tier 2 intervention. It's in many circles synonymous with Tier 2. This intervention, for those of you who might not be as familiar, which might be like one listener, uh, <laughs> check in, check out includes structured morning check in meetings with an adult mentor, performance feedback and support provided across the day, a structured checkout meeting with the adult mentor, and in many cases, increased home and school collaboration and communication using a daily progress report. Now, check and check out has been found to be helpful for many students, especially when there are adaptations that are based on the function of the student's behavior, but it's designed specifically for students with externalizing behaviors. And for a long time, there were no standard intervention protocol alternatives to check and check out for internalizing risk, but that has changed in more recent years. So there's some offerings, but not nearly as many.
0: So, surprising or not, those numbers are painful to hear. Um, and I'm sure Delaware isn't the only state with similar you know percentages. So, given that there is such a need and there's low access for students mm-hmm. to receive this kinds of support, what what interventions or approaches are there out there uh, to address internalizing needs?
2: So across the past, uh... Four to eight years specifically, there's been a lot more intervention development research focused on internalizing risk, which is really good news for tier two systems in schools. Perhaps the most extensively researched program is the Resilience Education Program, or REP. REP was developed by Steve Kilgis, Katie Eklund, and Andy Garbitz at the University of Wisconsin Madison. And it's designed for implementation at Tier 2 and with students in grades 4 through 8 right now, although adaptations are being made to expand this grade range to also include high school students. Uh, REP combines three primary intervention components. The first is an adapted check-in check-out procedure that's tailored to better meet the needs of students with internalizing risk. The second is a small group-based cognitive behavioral instruction program uh, that's implemented across five weeks. And again, small groups of students, only those with emotional risk. And the third component is a family education and support program called Resilient Families. In total, REP is designed to be implemented across 10 weeks, with five of those weeks being those cognitive behavioral instructional groups, um, 10 weeks being that adapted check-in, check-out procedure, and 10 weeks with intersperses of activities for the resilient families. Um, The good news is you can access this program's materials for free. And uh, Laura and Rachel, I'll share a link with you in case you want to include that in the notes for this.
0: Perfect. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Another program was uh, being developed around the same time as REP, and that's called the Courage and Confidence Mentor Program. This program was developed by Clay Cook when he was at the University of Minnesota, and it's similar to REP in some ways. It includes an adapted check-in, check-out procedure and cognitive behavioral instruction, though in this program, students participate in cognitive behavioral instruction only at the beginning of the program in 2 40 minute lessons before the check and check out the adapted check and check out procedure officially starts. Uh, like rep the courage and confidence mentor program has only been evaluated to date in upper elementary and middle school populations. So we see that there's an emphasis so far um, in grades 4 to 8 that most intervention options have been developed for that internalizing population um, in grades 4 to 8. It's therefore unclear if these two programs are developmentally appropriate for younger students in elementary school or even for older students in grades 9 through 12. And this is important for us to consider because we know that internalizing symptoms look different and affect students differently across the developmental span. That anxiety among five-year-olds looks very different than anxiety among 18-year-olds most of the time. So, to address these limitations, I've actually been doing some work developing and evaluating new programs. And one is the ComCat program, which I developed while implementing small groups in the School District of Philadelphia. This program was designed for K through five students, and it combines uh, an adapted check in, check out procedure, just like REP and the Courage and Confidence Mentor program. That check in, check out procedure also includes self monitoring of emotion and self monitoring of emotion. Uh, coping and relaxation skill strategy usage. And it includes five 30-minute group lessons that teach relaxation skills through behavioral skills training. So far, we've done one underpowered cluster randomized control pilot study, which we recently published in School Psych Review. And we found that program participation significantly improved students' relaxation skills knowledge and moderately reduced their experience of anxiety symptoms as students self-reported. Another program is positive outcomes with emotion regulation or the power program, which I developed alongside my colleagues, Laura, Mm -hmm. Jen Francisco and Janice Sanders at the Center for Effective Schools, with the support of the Northeast and Caribbean Mental Health, Mental Health Technology Transfer Center or the MHTTC. This program we designed for secondary students. And it includes seven small group sessions and daily mentor checkouts for students with emotional risk. In this uh, program, strategies taught within the sessions are based on motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral instruction, and ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy techniques. And so far, again, we've only done one pilot study. We did a single case design study And uh, we found that program participation significantly decreased student self-reported emotional symptoms, increased directly observed social engagement in classrooms, and decreased directly observed negative affect in classrooms. But with both COMCAT and Power, we designed the programs to be implementable by school professionals who don't have that specialized mental health training, who, who might not have completed a graduate school program or coursework or supervised experience providing mental health services to students. We did this to make sure that these programs are accessible and feasible for school systems with various resources and with various staffing roles and structures. Um, In adopting any of these programs, though, it's important to keep in mind that they need to be situated within an MTSS framework that this includes having that strong tier one system of support which will greatly bolster any tier two efforts, that we also want to see multi-method, multi-informant universal screening systems that can identify students need of tier two services, but also targeted assessment procedures to evaluate the nature of those needs, so what type of intervention students need, because that's not currently assessed through screening. This also includes having efficient progress monitoring measures to make sure that students are responding to tier two interventions how you want them to respond, that you're not just implementing and hoping that um, the programs are working.
1: That actually brings me right to my next question. Um, (laughs) So um, I know a lot of times with intervention, especially for social, emotional, behavioral wellness, we don't necessarily always monitor progress or see the Mm -hmm. effectiveness of these interventions the same way we would for like a reading intervention. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how we might progress monitor um, these types of interventions?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I think has a lot of schools and researchers still scratching their head because there's not a ton of empirical guidance or a lot of available tool options for efficient tier two progress monitoring in schools. But um, I personally like to divide currently available tools into three categories. Um, The first category is dual purpose intervention-based tools, which I'll define in just a minute. The second is brief self-report rating schools. And the third is um, observational protocols. So our first category or dual purpose intervention-based tools can include tools like the daily progress report that's used in check-in, check out, in rep, in the courage and confidence mentor program, and in the comcat program. This type of measure is among the most feasible to use for progress monitoring purposes because it's already expected to be used as a part of the intervention as a treatment component of intervention. Teachers are providing feedback to students and in doing so they're also providing a rating and therefore indirectly collecting data. This type of measure has its problems though and it's among the most likely to produce invalid or inconsistent results because again it's used as a part of the intervention. It's student facing, so implementers could provide feedback, could provide ratings that are overly positive or overly negative in order to influence students' behavior. But this is an option for progress monitoring for sure. And it can be especially helpful if it includes student ratings alongside adult feedback. It can be very easy and feasible for, for schools to use this type of data alongside other data that they already are collecting. But we can also assess student ratings of their emotions, behaviors, or even strategy uses outside of progress reports, outside of those DPRs. In some cases, interventionists can and have created their own brief measures, such as like single item scales, to assess students' functioning or experience in a certain emotional domain or behavioral domain. But there are existing measures designed and evaluated for this purpose too. And the one that I'll highly recommend is the Behavior and Feeling Survey, which I began using in Tier 2 progress monitoring systems a couple of years ago. The Behavior and Feeling Survey was developed by John Wise at Harvard, and it has both a student self-report form and a caregiver report form that can be completed by guardians and family members. With students, it's been evaluated for students ages seven through 15. Each form of the behavior and feeling survey asks the respondent to evaluate their behaviors and feelings across the prior week. So it's intended to be used as a weekly progress monitoring tool. There are six items related to thoughts and feelings, which map onto internalizing symptoms, and six items related to conduct and behavior that map onto externalizing symptoms. So respondents rate the extent to which each item or category of symptom was a problem for the student across the prior week. So that's that student provided rating, that brief rating scale with the behavior and feeling survey being an example. Another option is, of course, directly observing the student. And this type of data might be most sensitive to changes in functioning especially for students whose symptoms are more readily observed in classrooms, but it might be the least feasible for use in authentic tier two systems in schools. So Steve Kilgis at Wisconsin-Madison developed, as one example, the Internalizing Behavior Observation Protocol, or the IBOP, which is an observation tool for the assessment of internalizing behaviors in the classroom. And in this protocol, internalizing behaviors are observed using momentary time sampling, So at the very end of 10-second intervals across 20-minute observations in classrooms. Again, this method can be really valuable, especially within single-case design evaluations of studies, but it may be more challenging to implement on an ongoing basis within progress monitoring in new schools.
0: So your work focuses so much on how to expand access and delivery of Tier 2 interventions for students who have internalizing symptoms. So to provide those resources and supports to school psychologists or more broadly educators in general, any any old classroom teacher who may want to implement any of these resources, how do you locate strong evidence-based tier two interventions? I know you mentioned a few here, Mm. but how do you locate those types of resources?
2: That's a great question because sometimes there are great resources that are hidden in the archives of university websites or maybe even not posted there yet. Mm -hmm. Um, There are great websites like Intervention Central and other depositories or databases of evidence-based practices and programs that are available, but I found that there's typically a lag in the time that the program is developed and evaluated versus the time that it's actually added to those places. So, There's not a great answer for this, and I'd love to identify a solution to make this more feasible, but some of the ways that I've learned about them are from attending professional conferences, like, uh, like at NASP, I've learned about a lot of different programs at NASP, I recognize that I working at a university currently have access to academic databases where I can conduct literature searches and many folks working in schools do not have access to that. So there's again, a lag between um, research studies being published and saying, this is a great program and people working in schools doing this work actually recognizing that that's an option for them. So in terms of actually finding these resources, I would say if folks are able to attend any state, regional, national conferences or attend webinars put out by different um, organizations like the National Center on School Mental Health, including NASP and other places, a lot of times these resources, many of them free are adverti- advertised there. But other than that, I do recognize it can be a bit of a needle in a haystack search to start Googling Tier two interventions for this great range in, in this area. And maybe that's something that we can all work on um, identifying how to disseminate and aggregate information in accessible places better to promote that research to practice gap. Because otherwise, what are we expecting will happen if we develop these programs, talk about them once or twice a year and then hide them somewhere on websites, yeah. right? Right, right.
0: Well, we appreciate you highlighting a few of them here that are, are good for internalizing needs for sure. So that's helpful to all of our listeners.
1: So now we have, we hopefully we'll have some early career psychologists out there listening. So what advice do you have for them?
2: Oh, well, I am an early career school psychologist myself. So I don't know if I'm fully qualified to say this, but I would say one thing that's been really helpful for me on different levels is to get and stay connected professionally to find other school psychs who are passionate about the things that you're passionate about, because our work can be isolating, depending on what your role is, but if you are the sole psychologist in your building or district, which I hope you're not, you could feel like you're the only person who's experiencing these challenges and these barriers. Um, As one example, I have attended the NASP annual convention. Every year it's been held since 2014, and I still get goosebumps walking into the convention hall and knowing that I'll be surrounded by literally thousands of other school psychologists, many of whom speak most naturally in the lingo of acronyms and initialisms like I do, but many of whom also think (laughs) and care about the same things that I do. So If you're anything like me, getting and staying involved in some type of professional network or association where you get to interact and collaborate and learn from other school psychologists can be really valuable to you on multiple levels as you navigate your career. And this isn't like a plug necessarily for professional membership. That might be a great option for you. It's definitely a starting point, but also volunteering with any other regional, state, or National bodies or associations that are pursuing interests or advocating for things that are of interest to you, serving on a task force or a committee or some other type of time limited position. Um, I think you'll form relationships that you might not have otherwise. And you might learn about school psychology in contexts and settings that vary dramatically from your own or are similar for that matter. So, overall, my advice would be to get outside your box and connect.
0: Mm-hmm. What a great lesson for anybody, really. An early career school psychologist, anyone who's feeling isolated, or even people who want to brush up on new things and and network a little bit. That's a great piece of advice. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious, what is your next big project? You have so many exciting things going on. What What are you thinking next?
2: Yeah, one project I'm preparing for now that's really relevant to everything we've been talking about is um, related to evaluating tier two interventions, but here specifically comparing interventions that are implemented in two different ways. So um, I've developed parallel forms of an intervention protocol, one that can be implemented in small groups and one that can be implemented class-wide in elementary and specifically in the, the earliest years of elementary. And so the small group intervention protocol is designed to be implemented um, for students in classrooms with base rates of less than 20% of students in the classroom screened as at emotional risk. So the base rate is um, 20 less than 20% of students in that classroom require this type of intervention. So we're providing the support to the, these other students who do require the intervention in a small group setting. The second protocol, the classified intervention protocol is for students in classrooms with base rates exceeding 20% of students screened as emotional risk. So more than 20% of students in the classroom would require this type of intervention. So we're actually going to be delivering it classroom wide. And these parallel protocols include that cognitive behavioral behavioral skills training component, but also an adult facilitated student self-management technique and some adult-provided performance feedback on varying intervals. And so we're preparing to look at the usability and promise of these protocols um, and eventually to compare the two formats to see if students in this high classroom base rate condition respond more favorably to that small group intervention, where there's like more adult attention in that small in that uh, small group context versus the class-wide intervention where there's less attention to individual students, but all of the students in the classroom are participating in the intervention, which might then translate to things being adopted as a part of the classroom culture. Um, so I'm excited to see what this suggests because it could point to different opportunities for implementation if we see that there are promising results for both types of implementation. Um, as one specific example, in Delaware, we have state, regulations regarding how to implement MTSS. MTSS must be implemented for SCB domains and universal screening must be administered at least three times a year, at least four weeks into the school year for all students. And there are specific conditions regarding how the intervention is provided to students screened as at risk with class-wide intervention being one implementation format based on that base rate that I talked about. So these regulations were adopted But there wasn't much guidance provided on what to do or how to do it when you do have these high rates, these high base rates uh, and universal screening results in classrooms. So I'm hopeful that this will provide some specific guidance to these classrooms that do have high levels of risk, but also provide more flexibility and implementation options moving forward for schools.
1: Yeah, I think that's so important, right, because we've been talking about Tier 2 and about that, you know. 15% 15% ish, but you know, sometimes that 15% is high, highly in one classroom or one group of students. And so can we, are we going to pull each of those students out and do that intervention either in small groups, but can we do it class wide instead? So that's really exciting. So we're excited mm-hmm. to hear how that
2: goes.
1: Um, so our final question of the day is that what we ask everyone is, what are you thinking about that's not so average? School psychology related or not.
2: Hmm. So, so basically (laughs) I have a lot of not average thoughts (laughs) that I don't think I should share in this (sighs) format, but one thing generally I've been thinking about, and maybe this is more average than I think, but I've been spending a lot of time considering what it means to move forward and out of a global pandemic and what this means for me as a school mental health researcher. And this takes up a lot of real estate in my brain these days. So, for example, the federal government has made significant investments in youth mental health research in recent years in the form of funding to both education systems and researchers. Will that funding continue? As another example, schools have made mental health initiatives a top priority post-pandemic. Will that continue? And more personally, like in March and April of 2020, when everyone was holed up at home, my partner and I took more walks around our neighborhood and noted with careful precision when the earliest spring flowers began to bloom. Now I've moved since then, I'm in a new neighborhood this year, but I barely noticed the daffodils and tulips this past spring. So what else is changing about me? And on a larger scale, I've been thinking about what it means for us as a nation out of a pandemic to move forward toward a semblance of unity, thinking historically that there are these clear waves of social progress and oppressive setbacks in the distribution of power and tension between efforts to distribute power versus centralize it under the control of majoritized affluence. So there are these like pendulum and spiral analogies that are often used. But for example, following the abolition of slavery, and the Reconstruction movement, there was the Gilded Age. And following the New Deal of the 30s and 40s, we had McCarthyism in the 50s. And following the Affordable Care Act in 2010 and Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, we saw the rise of populism and nationalism and the resulting anti-woke movement in the United States, which has led to really drastic changes in education systems in certain states. So how does the pandemic fit into all of this what further changes are there going to be to our education system in future years? What will the next wave of oppression, oppression versus progress look like? When will it start? What will it take? How many more books will be banned before the pendulum swings in the opposite direction? And really what are the impacts going to be on today's students? What should we be bracing for and preparing for in preparing the next generation of young adults and leaders of our country? So I'm wondering, like what does it mean? What's in store for us? Are we going to be in the pandemic era? Are we going to be focused and prioritizing mental health perpetually? Or is this a short-lived thing? Was this a 2020 to 2023 three-year period of emphasis and uh, financial support in the United States? Generally, how can we break the cycle and what should we be preparing for? And I I swear, I'm not like a, uh, I'm not sure what the word is. I'm not a down-in-the-dumps person, I think a lot about this, but, you know, the distinction between anxiety and non-anxiety is whether you feel like you have the solutions to solve problems or not, that you, when you are really overcome by negative emotion, you feel as though there are problems that can't be addressed, and I, I don't think we should think about that, I think we should just identify what those problems are and anticipate them and brace for them so that we can solve them.
1: Yeah I think that's a great point. I think maybe these things are not so average but they should be more average. Like more of us should mm. be thinking about those things because it, it impacts us greatly both in our professional and personal lives. So thank you for bringing that to, to the show.
0: Absolutely and I mean you clearly have a lot on your mind about all of this and I do hope that it is a little bit more of a think about it to identify a solution and not too much anxiety. And I hope we're not creating anxiety in anybody else, but you're, these are really important issues. Um, you and, want me and, to record a different answer
2: so we can end on a more positive note? No, no. Okay.
0: <laughs> no, I think it's important. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for taking us on the journey of how MTSS began and how you've played your role and your, your future role in, um, addressing students needs for especially focusing on that tier two population tier two needs I think that's so important and I should not have said tier two population it's not a population it's a tier (laughs) two need to address the needs of the students so that was a, a misspoken moment um but I I certainly appreciate everything that you've shared with us today and I think everybody out there learned something new absolutely
2: thank you Rachel Lara this has been fun thank you thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us today. The Not Your Average School Psychologist podcast is brought to you by the Center for Effective Schools. To learn more about the Center for Effective Schools, go to our website at www.devereux.org.